All right. So tonight, we're going to finish this study that we've been in, uh, talking about confronting Christian nationalism. And I know that we haven't been in a lot of scripture in this particular study for the past month, only because this has been more information sharing. And I've been using the curriculum from Vote Common Good, Doug Paget and his team put together a bunch of video clips that we've been using for our discussion. But when we get into next uh, Wednesday night, what we're going to do is we're going to each week select a clobber passage that is often used against the LGBT community. And we're going to be uh, in, in the scriptures uh, looking at each passage, one per week. So uh, the next study probably will be about six or seven weeks long. And uh, we're going to try to understand the context and circumstances uh, behind all the scriptures that are often used uh, against the LGBT community. So that's starting next Wednesday night. Tonight, what we're going to do is begin with a passage of scripture. I am going to read a passage of scripture because this is really tonight talking a little bit about how individuals who are on two different sides of the aisle in regards to some of the things that relate to nationalism, how they uh, are to understand each other, how they are to get along, and those type of things. So let me read this as we get started. And, and we do have uh, some selections of videos, again, that we'll use tonight, as well as some discussion questions. So this passage of scripture comes out of the book of Philippians. We already talked a little bit about the kenosis passage where Jesus emptied himself and then God gave him a name that is above all names. But this leads into it. And beginning in verse one of chapter two, it says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common uh, sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. Now, that paragraph uh, is hard to apply to this particular topic, and the reason is uh, it seems that these two sides are so diametrically opposite that we absolutely don't give any credence of, or value maybe to a differing viewpoint, and we immediately try to refute it. So this uh, passage that Paul wrote to the Philippian church, again, the city of Philippi was a, a military-type city where there was a lot of retired uh, military personnels that, that made their home there. And of course, there's uh, the ongoing tension between the Roman Empire and this newfound um, emerging community called the church. And the ability to get along is uh, difficult in each of the letters that Paul writes to uh, throughout Asia Minor and through Macedonia and Achaia and Greece and some of the other locations. So one of the things that um, Paul's trying to do is establish unity. And hopefully 
by our understanding of some of these things regarding Christian nationalism, we can do a better job of dialoguing with each other and preserve some of the unity that we could have either as Christians or as fellow citizens in the same country. So I hope that is the goal that we can reach uh, tonight in regard to our learning over the past month. So what I wanna do as we get started tonight is uh, just get started with an introduction that will help us to understand where we're gonna go. And then we're gonna see the first video by Brian Zahn. So the last two lessons, we were looking at some information and this one is kind of geared toward response uh, to those who might be of a different position than what we currently hold. And we try to do our very best of recognizing the validity of other positions and the ones that we hold. And so even as we get into this, some of the things I might share with you, you might have a different take on, but um, we're all trying to understand each other a little bit better in regard to this information. Here's the two questions that I'd like for you uh, to consider as we watch this short first video. So Brian Zahn, a pastor out in St. Joseph, Missouri, has written a number of books uh, that uh, pertain to the kingdom of God, the call of Christ uh, to carry out the kingdom of God. And he calls Christian nationalism a theological failure. And so try to ask yourself the question, do I agree with that or do I understand that? That type of thing. Secondly, what are your thoughts about how the kingdom of God is established? Because it seems as though, depending upon which avenue you take, you're going to lean toward a cross-like look about establishing the kingdom of God or a more militant view of how the kingdom of God is established. Then we're going to do a little excursus tonight to talk about eschatology. And your eschatology and your viewpoint of the end times seems to inform the way you look at this, okay? So the first video from Brian's on, and uh, I'm going to minimize uh, our us here so it's full screen, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it. I think that there's not near enough attention given to the fact that this is a theological problem. There are other contributing factors, but I think for me, it was simply a theological failure that in, until you see the kingdom of Christ as it is, the seduction toward empire is going to be almost impossible to resist. Um, maybe I'll just jump in because yeah. I'll try to unpack what I'm getting at here. Um, one of the things, and I'm just reflecting on what I've just heard from Amanda and others. Um, if a congregation perceives their pastor as just having been basically uh, right-leaning conservative and now suddenly he's turned into a politically left-leaning progressive liberal well all that is is just you know switching teams and it makes people mad and you don't get anywhere um and that isn't what happened with me by the way what happened was i began to see the kingdom of christ and i became more jesus focused in my preaching 
I think at the bottom of most all of this is this question. How does the kingdom of God come? Does it come by the cross or does it come by the sword? And can you conflate the two? Well, I'm going to say, no, you cannot conflate the two. Okay, so that was just a short little piece uh, that Brian is talking a little bit. And if you know anything about his story, he wrote a book called Water to Wine. And basically, he talks about his own transformation from a very right-leaning, we would call nationalistic type of viewpoint. Um, and he kind of came through a transformation where now he's recognizing that his previous viewpoint was too militant, and it was something that leaned upon the nat uh, natural uh, mindset that people have uh, sometimes that, hey, the only way to win is you, if you power over people rather than power under them. And he will talk a lot about um, his uh, emergence into the idea of being a servant washing the feet of the disciples as an example, that type of thing. So um, the first point that I want to throw out to you, um, do you think his statement that Christian nationalism is a theological failure, uh, would you agree with that or would you disagree with that? And maybe why? Any thoughts on that? I think over the past few weeks, um, what we've been trying to show is that some of the ways we have seen Christianity, especially over the last several years, conduct itself, uh, getting in bed with politics and trying to control politics, would suggest to me that there's a theological misunderstanding of how the kingdom of God is established. Because a lot of what we have seen over the last several years is that um, there's not much fruit of the spirit that is being displayed sometimes on either side. And so things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and uh, self-control and gentleness are all things that are pushed aside for a greater um objective, and that is to get people elected that agree with your particular viewpoint and control and have power and that type of thing. So I think that statement is pretty accurate, personally. Um, and then the other statement that he made is that you can't conflate the idea of the kingdom of God coming by means of the sword versus the cross. Now, we have said in previous weeks that uh, some of the history of the church has seen the cross as, um, as in, in the perspective of, of violence. We go all the way back to Constantine in 314 AD when he used the symbol of the cross as a way uh, for a crusade to convert other people. And of course, through the Middle Ages and all the great crusades uh, often used symbolic religious uh, symbols uh, to justify a lot of the things that they were doing. And I think in our video from last week, we saw that there was a lot of religious symbolism uh, that was present in the insurrection of the Capitol a couple of years ago. 
So I would suggest that on both counts that Brian is pretty spot on in regarding uh, his observation of misunderstanding the kingdom, misunderstanding how it's established, and then also using the sword as kind of the primary way of advancing a cause. So now I said a moment ago that uh, a particular way of understanding the end times plays into a, a lot of this mentality. So this information that I'm going to share with you now is things that come out of my reading, that come out of my research. And um, so that's why I'm calling it an excursus. It's kind of aside from this Vogue Common Good curriculum. But let's take a look at it. So here we have um, a way of looking at the future that I would suggest has dominated uh, evangelical Christianity in particular since the 1970s. In the 1970s, Hal Lindsey came out with a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And there was a lot of emphasis on the second coming of Christ. And there was a lot of emphasis as well on trying to predict when Christ was going to come. Now, when people do that, they will dip their toes into the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the most difficult book in the Bible to interpret correctly because it is filled with all kinds of symbolism. And yet, at the same time, it seems to tickle the ears of people because, especially during the early 70s, there was a multitude of books that came out trying to use the book of Revelation as kind of a roadmap of what's coming next. And uh, so that caught on. And especially within evangelical circles, what we find is it became a big moneymaker. And when you can sell tons and tons of books because people are fearful of the future, when the talk is of a great tribulation and all that's coming, but we get to get out of it. Uh, too bad for the people that are left behind, that type of thing. Um, what happens is there's a certain mentality that begins to emerge. So this is kind of my theological uh, training early on in my life. Uh, when I came to faith in 1975, I started to go to class down in Akron, uh, to Moody Evening School. And uh, Moody, as well as Dallas Seminary, where I went to seminary, are very dispensational, which is a big word that talks about uh, how God conducted his um, his thing, his activity in the past, and what anticipation there is for the future. And it's as I've grown over these years and done other reading and researching, I began to see that there's some shortcomings to some of the things that I've been trained, and there was a shielding away from other viewpoints, some of them that was accurate to the way the early church believed about reading the books of Daniel and Revelation. And we were kind of shielded from that because if we don't know this by now, uh, most uh, educational institutions, and I'm not talking about case, uh, but but 
theological institutions pick a system of interpretation. That's what they teach their students, and that's what they try to reinforce along the way. And there's a lot of times not a lot of exposure to other ways of looking at it. So that was true about the book of Revelation. And uh, a Yale sociologist by the name of Philip Gorsky wrote a book called American Covenant. And he talks a little bit about how this view of end time events needs a second look. And he talks about how the Bible is read in such a way that it lends itself to Christian nationalism. So there's four of them here that the Bible is read predictively. So there are certain things in the Bible that are kind of like an encoded message, and uh, they're, uh, they're there to be figured out, and you need help doing that. So you are dependent upon professors and preachers to kind of uh, unlock that for you. Secondly, a lot of these things are taken literally. And so because they're taken literally, especially the book of Revelation, there's a lot of strange things, uh, all the way from the four horsemen of the apocalypse to a dragon, uh, to uh, strange beasts that are mentioned there. And um, even there, a lot of times, uh, the book of Revelation is kind of selectively interpreted, literally. Oh, this is literal, but that's not. Because to believe all of it literally is to believe some wild things. Thirdly, it's called premillennially. Now, all that means is there's a belief that uh, the kingdom of God is a thousand-year reign upon the earth called the millennial kingdom. And different theological viewpoints are Christ will come either premillennially, premillennially before that thousand-year reign uh, or postmillennially uh, after that reign is done that he will come and establish his eternal kingdom. Or there's another viewpoint called amillennialism, that there is no thousand-year reign, that it's a symbolic thing that's found at the end of the book of Revelation. And finally, number four is it's read vindictively. That is, there's a lot of judgment, and there's a lot of uh, apocalyptic-type language, that there's a battle yet to come, and it's going to be a worldwide battle, and this is the way the end is going to occur. And uh, you can imagine that it is very gruesome, and there are parts in the book of Revelation that talk about some very bloody and gruesome scenes. Um, and this is lends itself, I would say, to an outlook that, well, if if God is going to take over his reign upon earth in a violent, vindictive, and judgmental way, well, then we, his people, have the right to do that as well. Now, I'm not saying everybody thinks that way, but what I am saying is there is a kind of militant way of looking at the end times, and sometimes that shapes the way people look at current events. The big drawback, as I see it, uh, is that to interpret end time events uh, like this lends itself to newspaper prognosis. And what I mean by that is, where are we? And how do I interpret these events in relationship to when Christ is going to come? I will say this, that that is not how the early church 
read apocalyptic texts, and I'll tell you that uh, that in a moment. But I want to see if you have uh, any questions. Can I uh, can I explain this a little bit better? If if you have some questions on this screen. Well, to me, it's strange because we were taught all of this, uh -huh. you know, way back when. And, you know, we were also taught that God had a plan and he was going to do it his way. Mm -hmm. And that's that. And basically what we do doesn't influence it. Well, fast forward to 2016. My sister tells me she has voted for Trump because she thinks he's going to usher in Armageddon, mm -hmm. which had she had to add something to her thinking and teaching at that time to do that because she would never have tried to force God's hand in the past. So something, whether people were teaching different things, I, you know, I don't know, but mm -hmm. it just doesn't make sense how, to me how it evolved into that. Okay. Good, good comments. Others? Okay, so this Philip Gorski um, that wrote this book, called American Covenant back in 2017. Um, he wrote another one in 2020. Uh, and it's kind of a analysis of why evangelicals voted in such mass for Donald Trump. But this book that's earlier um, has this comment here that I thought was interesting. He quotes in this book, uh, American Covenant, he says, um, that this mentality, number one, leads to hubris. It seduces its followers into claiming to know things that no human being can possibly know. In other words, um, to be able to demystify the future and solve the mystery of the future is to claim to have kind of like insider information. Um, and this information was given to certain people, God's elect, God's chosen people, which in the Old Testament was uh, the Jewish people, but today it's now the church. Secondly, he says um, that the way of reading the Bible leads to the demonization of other people. And he says, are the USA's enemies become the physical embodiments of evil? In other words, when you look at things in this perspective, you have to have a villain. And we talked about this on Sunday a little bit. You have heroes and victims and villains, usually in storylines. And in uh, this storyline, the heroes are the church, and sometimes they are victimized by persecution. And we know that's a part of church history. Uh, all we got to do is understand uh, the early church and the persecution of the early church. But in this particular viewpoint, when you have power, you have to justify some of that activity and behavior. And so you pick out a scapegoat, like we talked about Sunday, and they become the villains. And so, 
as you're going to see in the next slide, mostly the villains are characterized as secularists. Um, and you'll see how that plays out on a, a graph that I put together on the next slide. Thirdly, he says, it leads to fatalism, suggesting that wars and other calamities are beyond human control. And I think that's what Shelley was trying to get at, that we were taught about the sovereignty of God and what God wants is what God's going to do, that there is no openness to the plan of God. Um, and therefore, we get on board or we get left behind, basically. Finally, number four, and most fatally is what he says, it suggests that the ultimate solution to all problems is a violent one involving the annihilation of one's enemies. So are we still waiting on Armageddon? And is Armageddon the final world war that is finally going to put the world to rights? In some mindset, that is true. However, that again, that is one way of interpreting the book of Revelation. Now, those of you who have been with me for a, a number of years know that we went through the book of Revelation on Wednesday night several years back, and uh, there are different ways of reading it. And if you want to kind of remember that, you can uh, look some of that information up on our website. However, there's a new book that's coming out by an author that I really do love. Scott McKnight is his name. And his next book that's due out in about a month to six weeks is called Revelation for the Rest of Us. And what he delves into is that there is another way of reading the book of Revelation. That's a lot of what I told you in a few years back as well. Uh, but um, this is kind of written on a layman's level so that if this is of interest to you, the subtitle of his book is talking about how the early Christians were um, the dissidents of the Roman Empire, and that the book of Revelation is really uh, to give them hope in the midst of their ongoing resistance against Rome's power and unjust um, uh, policies. So uh, you can look at that. Uh, it'll be in the library at some point, I know, and, you know, um, take a look at it and it might be an interesting read to you. Any questions or comments before I put this little um, picture up on the screen that I think will help us understand a little bit more? Anything? Okay, so here's my artistic ability or lack of. So you see two circles on the left. A lot of culture is influenced by Jewish and Christian Bibles, either Old Testament and uh, New Testament. From that, you find some elements that are interesting in the way it shapes our outlook. One is conquest narratives. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of conquest by the Jewish people, especially as they move into the land of Canaan. Uh, books like Joshua, Judges, uh, are all talking about how to overcome the Canaanite enemy. Uh, go in, wipe them out, uh, don't leave anyone living. Uh, incidentally, archaeologists suggest that there's really no evidence that that really happened the way it's described in Joshua and Judges. Um, 
no physical evidence of it, but uh, it, that's the presentation of it. And it's a way of establishing the importance of this once tribal community that came out of Egypt uh, that's establishing themselves as a nation. So you move into the New Testament and you have, like we were talking about, the book of Revelation that contains a lot of apocalyptic uh, uh, symbolism. Now, all of that kind of informs what I will call kind of prophetic religion. Now, prophetic religion is the type of end time preachers you see on TV that are always predicting uh, that Christ is coming soon. And we've been hearing that for hundreds and hundreds of years, but they will try to use things. I'm thinking of John Hagee, his uh, Blood Moon book, uh, other things like that, and is is speaking this prophetic that, hey, this is what we are to do because Jesus is coming soon. On the other side of our society is what I'll call Western secular philosophy. And this is the idea of not having religion involved in the conversation of civil uh, discourse. Uh, this is more libertarian uh, and liberal in its outlook. And both of these things, prophetic religion and civic republicanism, kind of shapes how there is a sharing of power. And uh, there's a pulling uh, of these two sides one side trying to gain more control than the other. Now, in terms of philosophy, we might say that the top up here would look more like a Republican platform. The bottom would look more like a Democrat platform. However, on economic things, um, Republicans and Democrats are pretty close together because uh, they they look for... Um, the way that they can maximize dollars, basically. So, you know, we just need to keep that in mind. So you have conquest narrative, end time apocalyptic, that then becomes a way of kind of speaking into the culture versus a more secularized, de uh, devoid of religion, and then uh, speaking into the, uh, into the civic discourse as well. So I think that's what's going on. And I think that's what is the battle right now between Christian nationalism and others that are trying to push back against it. So what we're going to do now is how do you talk to move toward the middle here, where both sides have a voice in something that is very important. So let's go to the next video. This is Stephanie Spaulding. And uh some of her uh, the questions that we could keep in mind on this short little video is what are some of the key strategies uh, to keep in mind? How do we determine whether another person's ready for that type of dialogue? And then uh, are we able to actually shift someone else's mind in the middle of these con uh, conversations? Or does change happen in another way? So let's watch. How do you talk to people you love who are Christian nationalists in love and break through the hate and the division? I feel so separated by certain friends and family members. 
mean, boy, if, if any question sort of gets right at the right at the heart of it, what, where a lot of us are, right? No, we're not going to solve for all of Christian nationalism, but is there something we can do? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, that that very insightful anonymous question. <laughs> um, I think it's like so many other polarizing questions, especially or con um, concepts, right? Um, whether we're talking about like supremacist ideology, privilege, and oppression. Um, I think we have to first find the space that is common ground, what we can agree on, and take note um, and measure of where you are and where you are not willing to go in the conversation in the, the most loving and open way that, that you can do that. What I, what I mean by that is, um, there, there are some conversations that I am, am not going to have with certain people because I know that they are not ready to receive it. And that comes from my perspective as an educator, right? I am not going to dive into graduate level material with folks who are just coming out of high school. You know? um, so there's some, some scaffolding that has to be done in that. And also, uh, uh, a commitment or an assessment of the level of commitment that you're willing to energize or put towards um, that conversation. Um, and then also it, it's a release. I think the third piece of that is a release in knowing that um, as much of the conversation you can have, there is no way that you are going to shift or change anybody else's mind. That is an internal, individualized um, place and decision that we all get to make for ourselves, right? So when I am having these conversations, I don't come at it from trying to persuade you and that I need to see the evidence of that persuasion. It is simply, this is what I know, this is what I know to be true, and this is what I'm learning. If you choose to receive it, Almost very biblically, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. So what I take away from that video is people will probably not change until something inside uh, wants to change. And with that in mind, um, some of the things that I think we need to to pursue is conversation rather than conquering another person and trying to change their mind because what happens when that occurs is we tend to put up our defense walls and we resist and, and push back. What are your thoughts on this and any observations on this video? Okay, so we'll move ahead. I think I agree with you. Um, sorry, I was having trouble. No, okay. on, I was no having trouble unmuting myself. Um, my a couple of examples would be like my my mom was, you know, when I first got saved, she was she would get she would yell at me for reading my Bible. Hmm. Uh, What's your background? A non-church background? Catholic. I was Catholic. Okay. Um, so, and then. Um, so, so then, you know, when she, when she grew older, um, closer to death, um, she actually got saved within 
about three months of her death, at least as best as I can tell. So something, like you said, something inside of her changed to make her rethink the whole, you know, it's either Catholic or not, you know, either you're Catholic or you're, you know. There was a very definite distinction between those two types of Christians, especially back in the 70s and 80s. You're right. Yeah. And then then the other one is when my son came out of the closet. Um, you know, I, I always believed, you know, that, that there were certain parameters and, and things that occurred in a, in a person's life that made them that way. And then when my son came out of the closet and he, he you know, our household was not, didn't fit any of the stereotypes that, um, that I always believed. Um, he, he, you know, it was, you know, I really, I really had to start going, you know, there's something to this. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm obviously wrong because, you know, from what everything I believe was about that, about this subject was wrong. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, you know, for me to open my eyes, something had to happen. Yeah. And I think we receive stuff as we're ready to receive it. And I think that's the frustration and probably futility of trying to convince other people certain things when they're not ready for it. And there's different life events, I think, that cause that. So uh, pre-January 6th and the insurrection of the Capitol, you might not have been able to say, hey, this is way too extreme. It's off base. But when that event happened, I'm sure some people changed their minds. Um, so sometimes it takes an event. Sometimes it takes a life crisis. Sometimes it just takes getting up closer to people that we've often kept at arm's length. And, and those type of things help us to meta, uh, kind of go through a metamorphosis, you might say, and, um, and come out the other side having different perspectives or at least appreciation for other people's perspectives. Anything else on this slide or this video clip? I, well, sort of. We were talking about Revelation. Mm -hmm. And way back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, no one could find America mentioned mm -hmm. in, in Revelation. Yeah. How, I guess I'm asking, how did all that switch to Christian nationalism with America being center stage when it's not, they couldn't find it. They found Russia, they found China, yeah. but America was nowhere to be found. I don't think it's a matter of finding America in the text. I think the way that developed is the fact that we held on strong to this belief that we were the one country that was founded as a Christian nation, founded upon Christian Judeo ethics and all that type of thing, which I think is a myopic way of looking at the uh, way our country began. However, that became part of the discourse of our history. And, and because we are a Christian nation, we kind of take 
the place of Israel in the sense that we are now God's chosen people. And I think that really plays very deeply into uh, nationalistic outlooks on things. Well, you know, we have the right to do this because we're trying to call our people back, our country back to its roots uh, to be a Christian nation. But even from the beginning, you have uh, the Puritans and others who were trying to establish not a country with religious freedom, the religious freedom that they wanted that caused them to come to this country, they wanted to create into a city of light or uh, the city on the hill type thing that, uh, so a lot of that plays into the national, uh, Christian nationalistic narrative, I think. So even if you can't find America in the book of Revelation, in fact, you, know, you can't find America anywhere in the Bible, no, but, you can't. Um, th but that is one of those things that you've got to use something to kind of justify that you are the elect. You are the ones that are chosen to carry on God's purposes. And I think that's how it's done. It's, it's kind of deeply in the DNA, DNA of the history of our country. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, let's move ahead. Kids don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You remember that sort of saying? It's it seems a little cloak, you know, a little, a little hokey and all, but it's kind of true. Um, look, one of the things that the religious right and Christian nationalists have used is a notion that they care about faith. That they and they talk about it. now. They're using it. They're perverting it and everything, but they talk about it. So one of the things that I think we can do in these conversations that say to people, we think our faith matters and we think our civic life matters and we're negotiating how those come together. And then to offer to someone that you're concerned, that you have really deep concerns about how some people are putting those together. People don't even, don't even know that the equation that they've worked out in their own thinking is not the only option. There are just a lot of people who, if they even watched this webinar, they would be learning things they didn't know before. They didn't know that there was another option. They have only been told since they went to Christian school or they heard it in Sunday school that this is a Christian nation from the pilgrims right through Donald Trump, right? And every once in a while, we have presidents that take us over awry and sometimes we're brought back home. And this is what they've been told. So it's what they know. Sometimes just breaking in with some new information to the people who know that you care, care about them, and you care about the issues that they care about. It really does go a long way. But I, I think we're to a place, and one of the questions that, that Bruce Rosen put here is said, there's a vacuum into which Christian nationalism has entered, he wrote in the chat. Can any of you say something about the disappearance of civic education and in public schools and how this is or not handled in parochial and private schools? And I think Bruce is onto something here, that there's just an awful lot of people who've only ever heard one narrative. Okay, so that particular um, video clip was talking a little bit about trying to 
uh, have dialogue so that we both can learn on each side of the topic. Um, Doug uh, has been around a long time. He he led a progressive church up in Minneapolis uh, called Solomon's Porch for many, many years before he de uh, decided to uh, move into this arena of vote common good. How can we dialogue in such a way with people who disagree with us so that we can have a better country for a variety of different types of people with a variety of different types of outlooks? And I think one of the things that he mentioned in this particular video clip was talking a little bit about breaking in with some new information. And I think that really is true for all of us. We do have a way of thinking about certain things and we're always gonna stay that way unless there's some new insight that is brought in. And once we have that new insight, we then begin to wake up to the fact that there are different ways of looking at certain things. And I think, as we will start next Wednesday night, we'll see that you don't have to interpret some of these clobber passages in the way that it has been used by a particular grouping of people. And as you look at it and consider all these type of things, you go, oh, my gosh, I've never seen it that way before. I've never considered it. Even if you've heard of it, maybe you haven't thought about it deeply or whatever. So, you know, I think that's true. And I think the other thing that Doug mentions that's very accurate is when people choose to either homeschool or private school their kids. And if they can afford it, great. If they can, you know, if they have the time and they have the know-how to do it, that's fine. I'm not against it. But one of the drawbacks is a limited exposure of the real world and the uh, complexities of the real world rather than kind of looking at life through a particular tunnel. And, um, that can be difficult for some people. I think you've heard the stories over and over, over again when uh, Christian young people that went through Christian schooling their whole life all of a sudden choose a university to go to, and they are confronted with new information by very smart professors, and they're going, oh my gosh, my faith is wrecked because now all of a sudden I don't know what to, I can believe. And Rather than saying, let's be honest along the way, there's a lot of things we can't know, and there's a lot of things that we can observe through uh, resources like science and research and all these type of things. So, you know, I think people that won't allow their kids exposure to some of that type of stuff are really setting them back uh, in terms of being able to interact with the real world. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on on Doug's uh, video clip? So we have a couple more. If you can hang with us uh, for another 15, 20 minutes, um, then uh, next one is uh, Samuel Perry. We were introduced to him a little uh, last two weeks. And um, he also wrote a book uh, talking about the flag and the cross and how they're often confused and uh, they're merged together. 
And uh, just a couple of things to keep in mind as we watch this. Number one is why is it important to keep seek a wide variety of viewpoints and opinions about political ideals and policies? And secondly, how do we encourage a wider source of information and viewpoints? So I think when we can encourage people, no matter where they land on a topic, to be well-read or at least have listened to a variety of different viewpoints, we might understand that the other side has reasons for the way that they look at things. And hopefully, if they were doing the same thing, they would understand, I have reasons for the way I look at things too. So let's see what Samuel Perry has to say about this. Quote unquote, say these people, so to speak, the other methodology for changing the minds and souls of white nationalists. What is it? And so, if it's not education or poor religious instruction, like what's the method for trying to get these people to see the light? And I'm using all of the metaphorical language. <laughs> So, uh, okay, I'll just offer some. I'll just offer some thoughts. I mean, I've, I've, uh, you know, I mean, after after what we've seen over the past year, I go back and forth between uh, being really optimistic that we can turn some things around, and, and then other times um, being being of the opinion that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, I think some things that we can do to try to make it better before it gets worse uh it is is uh, i think really challenge uh, these sources of misinformation uh, i think one of the one of the most toxic things out there is is are, are these lie factories uh for lack of a better word that that just feed conspiracy theory and lie uh and falsehood to these populations that are kind of eating it up and they're primed to, to believe conspiracy theories to feel like victims uh they just lost an election uh, that their their leader, who they trust and put a lot of trust in, question the validity of that election, and so there's already a sensitivity to feeling taken advantage of and and out of control and fearful about what the future holds. So I am thankful that Joe Biden doesn't seem to be the kind of guy who just wants to pick rhetorical fights and bully people on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful that the um, I'm thankful that that Trump is no longer on Twitter because I, I feel like freedom of speech, even though I think a lot of people think about freedom of speech being a priority, freedom of speech doesn't give somebody a, 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 the privilege to shout fire in a crowded movie theater. Uh, and Trump was shouting fire in a crowded movie theater 10 times a day uh, on, on, on Twitter for fun. Uh, and, and he was a main conduit of misinformation. And so I, I think getting a hold of those sources of conspiracy theory and misinformation, shining a light on them and denouncing them. Um, I do think conservative Christian leaders have a role to play in standing up for what is true and what is right uh, and saying, look, we, we have taken this uh, and, and acknowledging like, hey, maybe maybe I shouldn't have bought into these lies. Maybe we should have reconsidered where we were going with this. But now let's make it right and let's start doing the right thing. I, I really do. I, I'm not ready to write off those populations. Uh, I think the extreme ambassadors like, like Andrew um, was describing to some extent, that, that, that population may be a little bit too radicalized for us to, to reach right now, but those accommodators, those accommodators are worth talking to, right? Like we can, we can speak to those accommodators and say, look, this is, 
um, this is too much. This is wrong. This is idolatry. And let's uh, let's 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 bring it back to, I think, what we can all agree on the values that we can uphold to to defend democracy, uh, to be a good Christian witness, to defend the integrity of the church. Um, uh, you know, I think that's 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 what I want to work for. Okay, so um, Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead, who was up in the right-hand corner, wrote that book about the cross and the flag. And it seems as though this is the it, this seems to be a dominant theme in a lot of books that are being published. In fact, uh, Brad Onishi, who's a professor. Um, he does a podcast called Straight White American Jesus. Uh, his book is called Preparing for War, uh, as uh, and it's just been released last week. Uh, and it, he's talking about the future and he feels that um, that we're not done, that there's more of this conflict that's going to continue into the near future. So what Samuel Perry, I think, is trying to get at is uh, trying to understand uh, each other a little bit better and trying to encourage people to have a wider viewpoint than just the one that they've been taught or maybe even the one that they prefer. So what are your thoughts? Uh, any insights or questions on uh, this video clip and then we're going to watch the last two video clips together because it's the same individual, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Um, and um, is, but do you have any comments? And then we'll watch the last two videos, and then we'll kind of wrap things up on this study. But before we do, any thoughts on this? Okay. So you've been very patient with all these video clips, and this has been an unusual way that we've been doing our Wednesday study together over the past month. But hopefully you're getting a variety of voices and perspectives maybe that uh, you wouldn't have uh, previously. Okay, here we go. Jonathan, I find your, your comments to be very prophetic and refreshing in this sense um, almost every conversation that i've had with people about christian nationalism and the, the pains that go with it people ask basically how do i change the individual person's mind i know a person who thinks this way what can i say to them how could i deprogram them how could i de-radicalize them i hear you suggesting that the way we do this for an individual is to move in community or to move in a collective action of some kind, not just to go with one conversation one on one, but to try to remake the conditions in which these individual people are holding these beliefs. Is that am I getting at what your uh, what what your advice is? Oh yes, indeed, yes, indeed. Because you can't uh, you can't assume that the people who believe this are crazy in their context. Uh, but again, back to the empirical data that they were just laying out, there's far too many people to think that this is just, you know, some sort of aberration that needs to be treated in individuals. No, this is a culture that is 
feeding people lies, reinforcing those lies, and inviting people to uh, understand themselves as part of um, what I think people of faith, Christians, can only call uh, an idolatrous worship of the nation as um, the kind of ultimate end. And the, the alternative to that has to be building a better community to invite people into. And I think, you know, while we need to be building culture in all kinds of ways everywhere, um, any strategic effort to address this has to especially focus on building community in uh, rural places, and in particular in places that are, have been media deserts, because that is where um, and to get into the weeds a little bit, the Council for National Policy that I mentioned uh, has had the executive leadership of all of those media companies that Sam mentioned, from American Family Radio to Breitbart News to Fox. They've all been on that council. They've all coordinated with each other for decades. And, um, and what they have done is they have strategically gone into places where there are not local newspapers anymore, where there's not local radio, and they have blanketed it with their message. So people, so it's entirely possible, you know, if your pastor participates in the Family Research Council's pastor program and takes their free literature, and if, you know, you um, uh, are a member of the Republican Party and the NRA, which, by the way, have also coordinated very closely with this group, uh, and if you listen to uh, American Family Radio when you're driving the tractor out in the field, it's entirely possible that you never hear any other narrative in your life, right? There is no alternative in the place where you are. And so you would be crazy in that context not to believe this stuff. So I mean, anybody who knows that this is a lie has a moral obligation to try to enter these spaces and interrupt the uh, wraparound culture that has been created by this propaganda campaign. Let me say this. Um, I think what you're talking about on the first point in terms of really challenging churches that we may be part of or may be connected to in some way, uh, the challenge that I think is most important is the challenge to get involved, right? The uh, Too often what they were describing as ambassadors are uh, those Americans who participate in uh, Christian congregations um, who uh, are not all that enthusiastic about the agenda of the religious right, but have basically decided that it, um, it it's most comfortable for them uh, if they don't uh, challenge it too directly, and if they uh, more or less talk about Jesus in a way that Jesus uh, assures you some eternal salvation and some you know peaceful life for you and your family in this world. That, that, that's kind of the Jesus that has been preached. And I'm, I'm not just saying on the sort of a theologically conservative side of things. There's a lot of mainline white congregations that might be theologically liberal, but more or less still preach a Jesus that just lets you be more or less comfortable. Uh, and I think uh, it's time to reclaim the Jesus who um, disturbs the peace. You know, uh, you can't read the Gospels uh, too honestly without recognizing that while many of the poor and marginalized people uh, whom Jesus embraced and affirmed were very enthusiastic about his presence, but almost anybody who had any power in that society looked at the brother sideways and in the end tried to kill him. Uh, that's the response people had to Jesus because Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, the kingdom of God, uh, while not a partisan organization it is certainly a political entity and it uh, I would contend that it challenges any party 
within any political system of this world. Okay, so these last two video clips uh, were such that I thought brought an interesting angle. I don't know if you agree with it or not, but one uh, one of the ones that he made a comment about is uh, limited exposure uh, to other viewpoints. And I thought it was interesting that he made a comment about rural America and what they're hearing versus others that might live in a more cosmopolitan area and are have are exposed to much more. I don't know if you agree with that or not, especially in light of the internet. If you if you wanted to, you could you can pull up any viewpoint that you want and, and research it. But at least from that perspective, I thought it was interesting that a lot of the mentality of Christian nationalism does seem to go up in rural America versus versus cosmopolitan America. So I don't, you know, I don't know what to, if I have any conclusions on that or not, but I thought that was an interesting observation. Any observations, comments, or questions of these last two videos that we're, uh, we looked at? Okay. So one, go ahead. One of, his, one of his comments was an um, idolatric view of the nation, which I thought was kind of an interesting way to put that. Uh-huh. And that, and and that, and that Jesus was actually disturbed the peace. He wasn't a peaceful, you know, he wasn't a peaceful person, um, and. And I think in the the beginning of the first video, they talked about how, you know, you kind of have to open people's minds to help them understand another viewpoint. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what we're, that's kind you know, I I work with people, a lot of people who claim to be atheists. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I don't think they are, but I think they claim to be atheist just because it's easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it, it it's kind of almost on our side. It's it's like we're trying to convince people that you know the, the only way to heaven is through Jesus, and you know they really you know their lives are pretty okay. They don't they don't really need a savior mm-hmm. from their life their everyday life until they get to the end of the life, like my parents did, and they both made deathbed conversions um it's just it's just it's almost like it's the other side of the coin Mm -hmm. um from what we are you know we're we're trying to convince people of christ and and they're trying to convince people who probably are we're tired of the you know constant liberal agenda Mm -hmm. um who were kind of like looking at the, you know, the Rush Limbaugh's and the, you know, homeschooling and and just, yeah. you know, we don't believe in, we don't believe in evolution. We believe in creationism. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, you know, that's a perfectly, you know, we should be teaching creationism mm-hmm. and not, you know, it, it's just a pile of things on top of that. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it's almost like seeing the other side of the coin. Yeah, you have two sides instead of conversing with each other, tend to try to convince the other side. And right. uh, as a result of that, there's not a lot of understanding on either side. And there's a lot of um, bickering and battling that goes on uh, between the two sides. So I think what what this whole night has been about with these video clips is looking for those open doors um, where you're not threatening or manipulating uh, the other side to just say, hey, I'm open to hear what you think about this topic or whatever. And let's let's put our let's put our insistence on being right aside for a little bit. And let's see if we can understand why we come from the angle that we come from. So, you know, you, uh, Tony, you were just talking about people that claim to be atheists. Well, it's hard to say God says to people that says, I don't care. I, I don't even believe that there is a God. So what, what relevance of it is that to me? Whereas if we can take uh, the teachings of Jesus as the ultimate source of wisdom for living a good life uh, and and the common good, not just my good, but the common good, um, you can begin to get to discussions that are quite heated, in fact, and, and talk about, okay, how can we have a value of right to life, not just when a baby is born, but um, how did Jesus uh, look to the value of life all the way through uh, to the end? And, um, you know, and you can have substantive uh, discussions regarding, yeah, if we're going to eliminate abortion, where's the social safety net that values that life that has come into the world? Or do we say, okay, now that you've come through the birth canal, you're on your own now after the fact, that type of thing. So I mean, these are hot button issues, no doubt about it. But but if we can build respect for each other and understand that there are reasons that push us in a particular direction— then I think what we can do is, even though we don't agree, um, you know, we can be civil and we can have good discourse. I would say this. um, It seems as though most arguments are on social media. And that's the worst place to try to convince other people is on social media. There's no interaction. There's no back and forth dialogue. And and most of the time it can come across as an attack. So, you know, Twitter is, uh, I mean, you know, the, the things people say on Twitter behind the anonymity of their screen name or whatever is unbelievable in, in that regard. So I, I think that's what uh, Jonathan here was trying to get at. Community is an important part of this and how you build community where you can have strong discussions and yet respect and acceptance and even empathy at times uh, for the other side is critical as you as we move ahead. So, all right, I have one last slide. Go ahead. I think too, no matter where you live, it's, you have to be careful that you are uh, getting all sides, you're getting all the information 
because I remember my my brother when he said he first got on Facebook, he'd click on, you know, like on some comment that someone made that he agreed with. Mm-hmm. And then he would get inundated mm-hmm. with information from this person or this site. Mm-hmm. And if you're not careful, as he said, you're just getting information from this one direction. Um, and I think people do it with the news. If all you ever do is listen to CNN mm-hmm. and you never listen to any other station, you could become biased mm-hmm. the same way with Fox News. Mm-hmm. You put Fox News on all the time and I think you're going to get um, inundated with that information So it, from one side. So I think you have to be open. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be careful that you're not just getting your information from one place and be willing to uh, consider other people's opinions. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think it matters where you live. And I think sometimes maybe the internet uh, makes it worse mm-hmm. because I think that's how people get radicalized by getting on certain sites. And that's all they, all the information yeah. they get. It seems as though the algorithms uh, will keep putting in front of you what you open the door to. So it doesn't matter what it is. It could be a product. You go and you search for something that you'd like to buy. And the next time you go on the computer, that's all you see is that, you know. So the algorithms are such that wherever you open the door, there a flood is going to come. So you have to intentionally, I think, especially in relationship to news information, seek out other information. And that's hard to do. Uh, we live in the most prolific time of human history with the amount of information that is available to us. Think about your grandparents. Um and their world was much smaller. Um, and, you know, it was dependent only on newspapers and sometimes the radio. But this internet has inundated us like a dump truck that's backing up and dumping all kinds of information into our lap that our mind cannot really handle because it's too much information, let alone sort it out. And um, so, you know, you got to pick and choose, I guess, what you're going to explore, what you're going to research. And and that's going to be different for every one of us that's online. Um, you know, for some people, um, they could care less about the topic that's at the uh, at the front burner of your particular interest. Uh, so, it you know, you got to keep that in mind too. I want to engage you in this conversation. Well, I'm not interested in that conversation. I don't care. I'm going to make you listen. You know, we've all had relatives like that, that just (laughs) want to take us by the lapel and say, yeah, you're going to listen. Um, But, you know, I, that all we do is turn other people off uh, if we come across that way. So let me show you one last slide and uh, that this will be where we wrap up. Um, just some concluding thoughts. I think the epitome of what Christian nationalism is or the potential of it was on January 6, uh, 2021. And again, when you see pictures, just look for the religious symbolism that was associated with that particular event. Um, The key question is, um, why is there 
the desire to destroy a democratic republic in order to kind of push one agenda. I think that's kind of one of the conclusions that uh, I have of that event. Secondly, it um, another angle that we could talk about this is the diminishing white Christian population. Uh, you might know that our country is becoming uh, less and less white uh, because uh, Latinos and Black families and others um, have more kids than white families do. And so over the long run, what we're seeing is that um, minorities are now more than ever stepping into roles, even in politics. We're seeing that uh, political leaders are not just straight white males anymore. But And there's pushback on that, I think. And there might be some fear that's kind of uh, involved in this as well, that uh, the white population thinks this is our country. Uh, we're not going to allow you uh, to take it over. And uh, certainly we feel that if you live in this country, you got to speak English. And if you don't speak English, well, I'm sorry, we're not going to have signs in Spanish and other languages and that type of thing. But all that is, is fear sometimes speaking. And here is um, an interesting insight that I'll uh, end with here. Uh, Simone Wheel has written a book called The Need for Roots, Prelude to a Declaration of Duties Toward Mankind. And what she says in this book is that humanity has a deep need for roots in order to flourish and to feel safe. And when you see others beginning to have prominence and power, position and influence, um, one of the things is to try to uproot that other influence and try to drive them out. Well, the ultimate end of that can be through um, uh, white supremacy, violence, those type of things. But on a lesser note, um, you know, even some of the things that, uh, you know, when we really look at missionary endeavors around the world, of course, the United States is at the forefront of sending out missionaries. Are we really trying to communicate the love of Jesus or are we trying to proselytize into a Western mindset? There's a big difference. And so, you know, we got to be careful with that as well. So the last comment I have for this study is that the core of the kingdom of God is summarized by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. The more that we can read Matthew 5 through 7 and understand his teachings, the better off we'll be on understanding other people, looking out for those that are marginalized, looking out for others who don't have influence, uh, and seeking first the kingdom of God uh, above all other things. So if we name the name of Christ and we call ourselves a Christian, our first allegiance is not to nation, it is to Christ. And if that is true, then the Sermon on the Mount is at the core of our outlook on what we should be doing. And of course, within the Sermon on the Mount are things like do unto others as you would have them do unto you, going the extra mile, turning the other cheek, being willing to have kind of a Christ-like, cross-like uh, life that's willing to serve and even suffer at points uh, for a greater purpose than demanding our way and manipulating. 
So um, let me um, close this and I'll get us back to the full screen here as I stop this. All right. So any other thoughts that um, you have tonight uh, before we close the lid on this particular topic? Any insights or further suggestions? I think thanks for the presentations, Larry. I think there's one thing you have to be cautious of is is suggesting that you cannot be very highly patriotic and that you and you are a Christian nationalist because I, I do think you can be very patriotic in, in, in ways that would appear that way, but then also understand the context that you've discussed in this, but you know, in this in these sessions. So. Because uh, I consider myself very patriotic, you know, this military and and in many other ways too, and yet I'm, I I see the, the, the I have a the right perspective on it, but um, but I think you got to be careful not to not to paint everybody who's who's viewed externally as highly patriotic as being you know a Christian nationalist. That's, right. It's a little. Yeah. I that's a great way to reinforce um, the fact that um, what we are not saying here is not uh, not to have a love of country and a love of community. I think that's important and we should have a love for where we call home and uh, to be patriotic can uh, look a variety of different ways to, to, uh, uh, to the larger audience. And, you know, for some people, it's putting the American flag uh, out on their front porch. And for others, it might be other things that, um, you know, whether it's a Memorial Day parade or whatever it might be. But uh, so all of us can love our country and uh, love the people within our country, even if we don't necessarily see how, um how the other person thinks in regard to some of the uh, positions that they hold. So I agree with you. I, and I think, I think one other aspect of this is that I hate to say it, but I think too many people in our country take our country for granted. Mm -hmm. They take the fact that, you know, the type of country that we are, the way we live, you know, the constitution, the, the freedoms we have. Um, and I think in doing so, they tend to, Again, taking for granted, so that they're, they're not, I don't want to say they're not as patriotic as they, as they should be, but I think if we watch what's going on in Ukraine you, and you watch those people and the way they responded um, as a country and as citizens of a country, um, I'm not sure many, a lot of all Americans would respond the same way. I guess it's just interesting. And I, and in, in many ways, this topic of fighting against Christian nationalism is a patriotic um, uh, expression itself, because, um, you know, if this was to go off the cliff with this type of approach of Christian nationalism, that type of thing, we will lose some of our freedoms that we hold so dear. And so in some ways, that is a patriotic expression too, that we do want to hold on to the freedoms that we enjoy and appreciate it and maintain it, you know, whether, whether that's as something as simple as those who get elected into office are the rightful person that it should be uh, uh, holding that office. And we shouldn't throw 
shade upon it to, to say, well, it wasn't a valid election, especially when you go through 63 court cases and all of them don't find a shred of evidence that anything <laughs> was wrong with it. So, I mean, that's a patriotic expression, too, that we want to hold to the value of, of a democratic um, type of country that where our vote means something. So, right. you know, so that's good. Anybody else? Okay, well, you have done uh, a work of patience in this particular study. I hope it's been helpful. I hope it's opened up your eyes to a few things maybe you haven't thought about. And at least you have been exposed to some good thinkers uh, that uh, are out there on the front lines trying to produce materials for us to have a balanced viewpoint. Uh, so uh, stay with it and, uh, you know, continue to fight the good fight and continue to hold to a good faith. So, all right, we'll close here for tonight. And then I'm looking forward to the next six weeks or so. I think it should be a fun interaction uh, talking about the topic that is so important to our church, especially. So, all right, I'll say good night, okay? Good night. Good night. Have a good night. one, everybody. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you.